So we're just really blessed uh, tonight to have Dr. Edward Shree coming speak to us. Dr. Shree is a theologian and author. He's a well-known Catholic speaker. He is featured on EWTN regularly. He speaks to thousands of lay people, clergy, uh, so many in multiple different types of settings often. He is also, many people don't know this about him, uh, he's a, a founding leader with Curtis Martin of Focus. It's a fellowship of Catholic University students. We've had five missionaries on our campus the last three years, uh, recent graduates who are formed to be missionaries on college campuses. And he currently serves as the vice president of formation at Focus. He also leads pilgrimages to Rome and the Holy Land each year and is the host of a weekly podcast, All Things Catholic. So you should definitely check out his podcast, All Things Catholic. He holds a doctorate from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome and is an adjunct professor at the Augustine Institute. He resides with his wife Elizabeth and their eight children in Littleton, Colorado. So just before I invite him up, I, I, I want to tell just a short story. So my little brother has his master's degree from the Augustine Institute and graduated from there, I think probably like 2009, somewhere, somewhere in that, that time frame. And um, my little brother tells a story that one day, Dr. Shree walks into class and he says, okay, guys, I need you to know that David Merrick is my little brother, is a prophet, okay? He's a genuine prophet. Because what, what happens is the AI, I don't know if this still happens, but at least at the time, the AI, the Augustine Institute students would play against focused missionaries in an annual flag football tournament. My little brother was the, the quarterback, and he's in the huddle, first play of the game, and says, okay, do you want to score on the first play? And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. He's like, no, seriously, do you want to score on the first play? They're like, of course we want to score on the first play. So he draws up the play, throws a pass, they score on the first play. Dr. Shree was in the huddle, and he comes in again, he's like, oh, my gosh, David Merrick is a prophet. So <laughs> my little brother's a prophet, and Dr. Shree's a football player. We didn't know there, so... <laughs> Welcome to the national champions. <laughs> so please, right. welcome Dr. Shree. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> if, I don't know if oh. we say a prayer. Oh, please, yes. Fantastic. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and fill us with your divine life. Make our minds and hearts and souls fertile soil for the word of the gospel. We pray your anointing upon Dr. Shri. We pray your anointing upon us tonight. Transform and configure us to Christ, not only for our own sanctification, but that we may be more fruitful missionaries wherever we are. We entrust ourselves to you through the intercession of all the saints, but in a particular way, St. Joseph, and the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord, the Lord is, with is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mary Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, sinners now and at the hour, hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's such a delight to be here. You know, I learned way back then you know, when I got to meet Father's little brother, uh, when I had him in class, I, 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 what I learned that day in the huddle when he prophesied that touchdown 
is that people from Louisiana, especially the Baton Rouge area, are awesome at football. <laughs> so congratulations, national champions. It's so exciting to, to be here with you all. I'm from way up north. I, I live in Denver now, but I grew up in the Chicago area. I was a Big Ten kind of bat football follower, so I didn't have any dog in the fight. But I do want you to know I was rooting for LSU all through the playoffs and in the champions, so congratulations. You, you all know the founder of Focus is a graduate here from LSU. So for years, it was both, and I'm from Indiana University, and both he and I, for 20 years doing Focus, were just, we're just dying. To, could we come to LSU? Could we come to Indiana University? And in the same year, we both got our, our alma maters, and then we both got to go speak on our campuses uh, in that first year. So it's such a delight. I get to go to Curtis's. He hasn't been to my alma mater yet, so I need to get him at Indiana. But we're not good at football. We used to be good at basketball. We're not good at anything anymore. But um, <laughs> but it's great to be here. Thank you for, for having me. I've been, uh, I got in yesterday, and I think this is my one, two, three, four, five, six. This is my seventh talk, I think, in the last uh, 30 hours, maybe, or so. So, But I, I've been really looking forward to this. I, I love this topic that we're going to get into tonight. Um, you all came here tonight to hear me tell you a story about kayaking, right? That's, what, that's why you came. I want to tell you about kayaking. I'm going to tell you about uh, the, the time, the first time I went kayaking. My wife and I had only been married uh, about a year, and we went on an adventure in the Rocky Mountains with a bunch of our focus friends. They were going up on a, on a kayaking adventure, and I had never gone kayaking before, and I thought, this will be awesome. And there was a guide giving us the instructions on how to operate the kayak. And I don't remember much of what he taught us that day, but there's one lesson I will never forget, and that is this. He said, if you happen to fall out of your kayak, don't try to stand up in the river. The river is so powerful. It's shallow, but it's so powerful, it's going to knock you down. Don't try to stand up in the river. Just hold on to your life jacket and make it to the side. And so I said, okay. And he kept going on, giving us all these instructions. And eventually, he, he, he got us all geared up, and we, we are ready to set off into the river. And I'm in the front seat of the kayak. My wife, Beth, is in the back seat. And we set off on the, on the big river through the Rocky Mountains. And for about the first seven minutes or so, it was smooth sailing, calm, peaceful waters. We're taking in the blue sky, snow-capped mountains in the Rockies. It was just awesome. But we also knew we eventually were going to be tested. We knew that eventually we were going to hit our first whitewater rapids. And sure enough, I could hear the roar of those first rapids. And my heart started racing. My adrenaline is pumping. And we go into those first rapids, and all of a sudden, you know, we almost capsized to the left. And I try to overcorrect, and we almost capsized over to the right. We're getting drenched with all this water, but we pushed through. We made it to the other side. We were back on the smooth, calm waters, and I was so excited, I turned around to say to Beth, we did it, honey! And my wife had a look of horror on her face. She was going like this. Because when I turned around to start celebrating prematurely, I turned the kayak sideways with me, and we were now going sideways down the, down the big river. And the momentum carried us around eventually. We did a 180. I was going now backwards <laughs> down the Arkansas River. I'm trying to figure out how to steer this thing, so I just did a 360 to get us straight up again, but it was too late. It was too late because there was a big log that had fallen halfway over the river, 
A big tree fell halfway over the river. And while everybody else went around the log, we were headed straight for it. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You know what happens when your kayak brushes up against uh, a, a tree like that? Immediately, the river sweeps the kayak away. Just as the force of the river just takes it away. And guess what else the river wanted to take away with it? Me and Beth. <laughs> so we are holding on to this log for dear life. I, I couldn't see what was on the other side, of the log, and I just feel the force of the river, so I'm desperately clinging on. I didn't know what was on the other side. Are there a bunch of rocks? Is it a beaver dam? Is there a waterfall? Am I going to die if I let go of this thing? So I'm clinging on, and Beth's clinging on, and I just turn to her, and I smile, and I say, I love you, honey. <laughs> Been a good first year of marriage. <laughs> well, eventually, our guide came back, and he saw these poor souls dangling there, and he's like, it's okay, there's nothing on the other side, just let go, we'll meet you down the river. <laughs> and so Beth and I, we did one of those, one, two, three, and we let go at the same time, and whoosh, the river is just sweeping us away. I have no control over my body, and, and I'm choking in all this water, and my rear end is hitting every rock in the Arkansas River. <laughs> and I didn't like that feeling. So guess what I did? I just tried to stand up. And as soon as I tried to like put my feet on the rocks and stand up, boom, the river knocks me down, and I choke in more water, and in a panic, I just try to stand up again. Boom, it knocks me down again. I'm choking in more water, and just out of an instinct, I just try to stand up. Boom, it knocks me down a third time. And finally, I remember, don't try to stand up in the river. <laughs> so I eventually just grabbed my life jacket, got above the surface, took in some much-needed H2O, waded to the side, crawled out of the river, and I walked about a half mile downstream. I found my wife there, and she was alive as well, but we have not been kayaking since. Because <laughs> it's really hard. If you've ever had that experience of trying to stand up against a powerful river, it is so hard. It just knocks you down. And the same is true in our culture. You see, we want to try to live the things that matter most, our, our friendships, but especially dating relationships, marriage. There's so many forces in the culture that they're just leading us down a certain path that's just not working. And it's hard. I want to try to live dating and sexuality, marriage a different way than what the culture is saying. It's just so hard because everything we're, we see out there, the visions of love and relationships are just leading us a certain way that isn't working. You know, ever since the so-called sexual revolution, you know, that period in the 1960s, where many people were selling us on a certain vision of love and sexuality, saying, oh, we just need to, to set aside what your church says, set aside what your parents say, set aside tradition, and just express your sexuality however you want. If we do that, we're going to be happier. Yeah, your relationships are going to be happier. You know why? Because you're going to be authentic. You're going to be yourself, not just following some rule from religion. No, you're, you're going to be really just expressing yourself, and, and, and relationships are going to be better. Dating's going to be better. Marriages are going to be better. Family life is going to be better. That's what we were sold. And you don't have to have a PhD in sociology to go look out at the present state of dating relationships, marriage, family, 
to know that there's a lot of problems. I want to be very clear here. I'm not trying to say that like in the 1930s and 40s there were no problems. There were a lot of problems back then. It's just that the amount of anxiety people have about these things today, relationships, dating, about the, the amount of challenges in marriage and family has just tremendously grown. I don't want to idealize the past. There were problems. But are things better today than they were before the sexual revolution? Let, let's just, just take marriage, for example. Can we just talk about marriage just for one moment? What's the big statistic often quoted showing the challenges in marriage today? What's the big statistic? About 50% of all marriages end in divorce. So I want you to feel the weight of that. Go, I want you to go to math class. Remember math class? Remember the pie diagram, that big circle diagram? So picture out of all the marriages, half of them ending in divorce. That's so sad. Now, I'm not going to talk about divorce tonight. We could do a whole session just on divorce, the effects of divorce. But everyone talks about that. I, I want to be clear. It's not because I don't care about this. This is a serious issue. I've had dear friends go through the pain and heartache of divorce. I'm not trying to minimize that issue. Even more so, I alluded to it earlier today at Theology and Tap, in my work with college students like you the last 20 years and young professionals in the 2030s the last 20 years, I hear from so many of them who've come from broken homes how much that has affected them. They grow up and they're thinking, oh, it's okay, I'm fine, you know, it doesn't really affect me. But it's usually like in their later college years or maybe shortly after college, especially when they enter into relationships of their own, that suddenly they realize how that divorce really did deeply wound them. And it's affecting their ability to enter into relationships. And they realize, I need to go to counseling. I need help. I need spiritual direction. And, if you're, and by the way, if, you're, if any of you are in this, my wife has a whole ministry on this thing. She's a child of divorce. She's done podcasts with the bishops' conferences um, and, and has written a lot about this because she knows just how much of a burden that is in life and wants people to find the healing that God has in store for them. So I want to be clear, this is a serious issue. It's just that everybody talks about those things. I want to talk to you tonight, though, about what I like to call the other 50%. The other 50%. The marriages that are staying together, how are those marriages doing? That's what I want to look at. So I want you to go, go to math class again. Pie diagram, half of all marriages ending in divorce. How about the other half of the equation? How are these marriages doing? The ones that stay together, are, they, are those marriages thriving? The marriages that you know that are staying together out there, are they, are they really happy marriages? Are they marriages in which husband and wife feel like they married their best friend? Marriages that are growing in trust, growing in emotional closeness? How are those marriages doing? You know, one, one study done years ago showed out of all the marriages that's, that are still intact, how many of them experience emotional intimacy? Like they feel like they married their best friend. How many marriages? What would you guess? Yeah, it's just a little over 10%, 12%. Feel the weight of that. Yeah. 50% end in divorce. Now we're looking on this side of the pie diagram, and it's just like a little sliver of that pie diagram are truly happy marriages. Now, don't get me wrong. Marriages staying together, that's a really good thing. And there's some people that stay together through many challenges and trials, and it's quite heroic. God bless them. It's a wonderful thing. But we all know, I think, that when we go into marriage, if you, if you hope to be married someday, that... that just staying together isn't what you hope for. Don't you long for something more than that? 
I mean, imagine if I come back, I'm blessed to come back to, you know, I do pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and I would say Cajun country is like another Holy Land. So if I get the chance to come back here, and let's say you see me a couple years from now, and you say, oh, Dr. Sri, hey, you talked about your wife. How are things going? How's your marriage? I said, oh, my marriage? It's awesome. I said, wow, what makes your marriage so awesome? We haven't divorced yet. <laughs> you know, no, no, staying together is a good thing, but that's not, that doesn't make a great marriage. A great marriage is a marriage in which husband and wife can look each other in the eye 10, 20, 30 years into their marriage and say, I love you more now today than I did when we were first married. It's a marriage that's growing in union, growing in trust, growing in friendship. That's what we long for. And if you have that desire, do you have a desire for that kind of lasting love in your life? A true love, a lasting love, someone that loves you for who you are, that loves you not for what you do, not your performance, not how you look, not what you post on media, social media. No, they, they love you for who you are. Don't you long for that? And don't you long, if, if you do find that, that love, that it'll last, and not only does it just last and stay together, it'll actually grow? I want you to know that desire that's there on your heart, God put that there. God wants you to have that. I know that so many people just wonder, I don't know if I could ever experience that. Uh, you know, I, I've seen train wrecks and marriages all around me. I've experienced the, the, the way the sexual culture lives, and I, I'm wounded from it. I just, I doubt that there really is a lasting love. I'm here to tell you the gospel of marriage, as Pope Francis describes it, and Pope Benedict describes it, that marriage is good news today. That God does have a plan, and he put those desires for you that you have to be known for who you are, to be loved for who you are, to have a lasting, committed love. Those desires are from him, and they can be fulfilled if you follow God's plan for love and marriage and sex, not what the world is offering. So that's what we're going to get into today. And I hope what we get into is going to be super practical, and it can prepare you for the foundations, whatever God has in store for you in your vocation. But I want to just get a show of hands here to show you how practical this is, what we're getting into. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people here are already married? Okay, we've got a lot of married folks here. How many, any engaged folks here? How many people are in marriage prep? Okay, so let me see. Maybe eight or so people in marriage prep. Can I ask another question? How many of you hope to be married someday? Do you think you're... Okay, all of you, keep your hands up that you hope to be married someday. How come you didn't raise your hands when I asked you, are you in marriage prep right now? Because you were thinking, am I in a marriage preparation program? That's not what I mean. I want you all, you college students that are here and other single people here that you desire to be married someday, I want you to know you right now are in marriage prep, right now. You may not be in a class, you might not be meeting with father, but you are in the preparation stage for marriage. And what we're gonna get into today is so important for you because the way you live your life right now, the decisions you're making, especially in friendship, the way you live with your roommates, the way you live in this Catholic community here, you are forming habits of how to live in communal life that you are gonna take into your marriage someday. The way you approach dating relationships, how you live dating relationships, the way you are living that is forming certain habits that you are going to bring into your future marriage for better or for worse. So don't think that, well, I'll, I'll get married someday and I'll figure it all out then and we'll have a nice tuxedo and a nice dress and somehow God will sprinkle grace on it and it'll all work out. 
God gives grace, and it really does help, but grace is built on nature, the Catholic Church teaches, and right now, you're forming your nature. And so what I'm going to get to is imminently applicable. As a friend of mine says, I love theology on the body. It's awesome. But John Paul II's earlier work, Love and Responsibility, changes the way you wake up on Monday morning and treat your wife. It changes the way you wake up on Tuesday and how you look at your brothers, your sisters on campus. It changes the way you live. Many of you, how many of you heard of TOB, Theology of the Body? I'm guessing most of you have. Those beautiful talks, addresses John Paul II gave on love and sexuality. And a lot of people really get excited about that, and it's wonderful. But he wrote an earlier work that is more foundational. In fact, I, I recommend people don't read Theology of the Body. Stop getting into TOB until you can get the foundations right. People, oh, theology body, self-gift, and that's great. I love it. I teach classes on it. But the foundation was love and responsibility. This earlier work he wrote when he was a chaplain like Father was, is right now, working with young people like you. He was a chaplain in Krakow, and he gave his life to young people, accompanying them. He got to know these young couples. He poured his life out into them. They shared meals and music and kayaking. He was better at kayaking than I was. Um, they go hiking together. He just poured his life out into them, and he remained deep friends with them, even when he became bishop of Krakow. And, and then, guess what? But then when he became pope, the friendship ended. No! When he became pope, he committed to those young people from decades ago and invited them to come to Rome every year to spend his summer vacation with them. He was the godfather of some of their children. Right before John Paul II died, the last message he sent out, just like a, the day or two before he died, he sends a fax message back to his friends in Krakow. That's how much he loved and knew young people. And he saw their struggles in love and in relationships and what the secular world, especially in his day, the atheistic world around him and communism was offering. And he wanted to offer a different view. And it's that different view I want to get into tonight. Are you ready to go? You want to jump into this? You ready? Let's begin. I, I know Father began with a prayer, but you wouldn't mind if I do one prayer too, would you? You all love Mary. We love Mary here. Mary leads us to Jesus. Let's ask her to pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, what I need you to do, I need you to work with me for just five minutes. Can you give me five minutes to just work on a couple really basic points? It's not going to be really deep, but it's important we get the foundations right. You ready? I want to talk about what John Paul II does at the beginning of his book, Love and Responsibility, is he lays out a couple foundational principles about ethics, how we should live and live together morally. One principle he calls the personalist principle. And I don't, you don't have to remember the term. I want you to make sure you remember the idea, though. He's trying to come up with a principle that everyone could agree on, even if you're not Christian, you're not Catholic, but just a basic thing. And he basically says, we should never treat another human person merely as a means to, to our own end. I should never treat another person merely as a means to my own end. He, he writes about how every human person is utterly unique. They have their own mind their own reasoning power, the ability to think for themselves. And they have their own free will, the power of self-determination to make choices for themselves. So when I use someone for my own purposes, 
I'm really just violating the, the beautiful dignity of every person to think for themselves and choose for themselves. He's basically saying, don't use people. And I think most people can kind of go, yeah, I probably shouldn't use people. The problem is, even though we, especially as Christians, might recognize, yeah, we shouldn't use people, the, the world in which we live is very utilitarian. That'd be the second technical term. But again, I'm not as worried about the term. I want to make sure you get the idea. We live in a utilitarian age. What is utilitarianism? Utilitarianism emphasizes the usefulness of everything. How useful is this to me? What advantage do I get from this? If I make this choice or this choice, which one's going to give me more benefit? What's going to give me more comfort? What's going to give me more pleasure, more enjoyment, more fun? I'm always evaluating things in terms of what's going to be more beneficial to me, more interesting to me, more fun for me. And let's be honest, in life, there's many times in life that's a really good way to live, right? Like, if, how many of you had to drive here? Anyone had to drive here, like maybe from far away? I don't know, do any of you use Google Maps or Apple Maps? You're trying to figure out what to go. And the maps tell you here's the fast way to get here, right? And then sometimes, I don't know why they do this, they give alternative routes. Do you know that? And sometimes when I, I get it if like, it's like one minute off, five minutes off, but sometimes I see an alternative route that's like 40 minutes another way. I'm like, why are you even telling me that? Who would want to go the long way, right? So I look at the, I could take the 45-minute route or I could take the three-minute route. It's more useful to me to take the three-minute route. We make decisions like that all the time. Maybe you're going to invest in the stock market and you choose, or here's one company that seems it has great potential for good return on investment, and there's other companies that are falling apart, and it's probably better to put my money here, right? It's okay to make utilitarian decisions. We need to do this sometimes. If it's pouring rain outside, I make the utilitarian decision. I'm going to get an umbrella. It's okay. The problem is when we take that same attitude and we apply it to the people in our lives. That's the problem. When I start looking at my family members, my friends, the people in my community this way, I view them as a means to my own end. I value this person more in terms of what do I get out of them? Are they useful for me? Oh, it's really good. I, if, I, if I know this person, they're going to help me and get this job. But if all of a sudden they change careers, then they're no longer useful to me. I'm not really interested in them anymore. You know, is this person useful to me? Oh, well, they're really good for helping me study for this class. I'm struggling with. They understand the material. And I can, they, but I'm not really interested in them. I don't really care about them. I just care what I get out of them. Once this class is done, I'm probably not going to hang out with them much. Like, when I start treating people in my life, just what do I get out of you? You know, this person gives me more pleasure. This person gives me more enjoyment, more fun. Well, here's the deal. Once I cease gaining something from you, for me, I gain, I, I, once I don't get that advantage, I don't get that pleasure anymore, then I, I'm not, it's just the relationship isn't going to be really, really be there. Because I'm not really committed to you. I'm just committed to what I get out of you. And that's how people live today. But you all are really good, devout Catholics. So I'm sure this is never a struggle for you, is it? I mean, you're all committed. I mean, heck, you're coming out on a Thursday night. You could be doing many other things on a Thursday night on campus, but you chose to come here. So I'm just going to throw this out there, just hypothetically. Maybe this is something that would happen. If, here on LSU's campus, I'm going to ask the students, if it's Monday night and a friend of yours comes up and says to you, hey, on Saturday, that new movie's coming out. Are you free on Saturday? Do you have any plans? Do you want to go see the movie? If, your friend, if you're free on Saturday night and this is a movie you'd like to see 
and this is your friend asking you to go see the movie on Saturday night, how many of you on Monday are going to commit and say yes right away? How many? Okay, a number of you are. Are there any of you that might not commit right away? Be honest, come on. Some of you? Why, why won't you commit? You're free? You want to see what would be? For me? Yeah. <laughs> you can't give a good reason? I think it's, it's one of those things where a movie's like not, I mean, it's more important to you as a person, but like where a movie is subordinate to something else. To something else. Okay, so you might like to see the movie. And you might like to see, so why don't you just tell your friend no then? Why don't you just say no thank you? Because uh, a movie's something you can see anytime with them. Okay. Maybe. But why don't you just say no thank you, I'm, I'm not going to go with you to the movie on Saturday. If you're, because you might want to go, well, okay, so then why don't you just say yes? You might not want to go to the movie until March. On Saturday. Why? Because something else might come up. Right. Right. Have, you, have you ever done that, something like that? Right? Like, you're free, and this is a friend, and it's something you might like to do, but, I, you know, I'm not going to commit yet because something better might come up. You don't tell your friend that, but that's what you're doing, right? I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. What you're basically saying is, Oh, dear friend, thank you so much for inviting me to go with the movie, to, move, to the movie with you on Saturday. I'm really interested in this, but I don't quite want to say yes right now because something better might come up, my dear friend. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to tell you no right now, my dear friend, because I basically want to keep you, my dear friend, as a backup plan. I mean, honestly, isn't that what we're doing? Let's be honest. Okay, how many of you have ever done that? Come on, you've done that, right? Not just college students, us older adults, we've done those things, right? We can't even commit a Saturday night to someone. We're so worried about, am I going to miss out on something? Is there going to be something more interesting for me? I think I share that story because it shows how susceptible we are to a very utilitarian attitude with the people in our lives. That we're always looking at what's going to be most interesting, pleasurable, beneficial for me. Okay. Though it's background, now we get to the fun stuff. You ready for the fun stuff? Okay, I want you all to tell me, um, name like a famous coffee house nearby here in, on campus. Give me one. Highland Coffee? Did you say Highland? Okay, Highland Coffee. Do you all like Highland Coffee? Is that a good place? Okay, let's say it's Saturday morning um, at Highland Coffee, and there's some student there, some guy, who's sipping his coffee, He's doing some studying, reading his book. And then all of a sudden, this beautiful girl walks in to Highland Coffee with her friends. And he immediately is drawn to her beauty. I mean, she's walking in. He looks at her. He reads a line of his book. Looks, okay, she's over there now. Takes a sip of his coffee. Oh, she's up at the counter now. I mean, he's just like mesmerized. Just can't stop looking at her. She is so good looking. But it's more than physical. It's more than a physical attraction. You see, he's noticed her here on other Saturday mornings with her friends, which is why he's here on this Saturday morning again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been drawn not just to her good looks, but also just to her personality. Like, she seems really joyful, outgoing, and fun. And so there's something more than just a physical attraction. And that's what I want to talk about here today. What's going on when boy meets girl? When there's that initial spark of attraction, what's happening there? I don't know anyone else better than JP2 that has really shed light 
on that mystery of attraction between men and women. You know, I mean, these things can just happen, right? They, they just happen spontaneously. There's a guy at the checkout line, and all of a sudden, beautiful girl walks by. Ding, he's just attracted, right? There's some woman here at Christ the King, and all of a sudden, there's a, it's the beginning of a new semester, and there's some new guy that shows up at the campus ministry here, and he's a transfer, and he's halfway good-looking, and <laughs> seems really, you know, really manly, and chivalrous and prayerful and wow and like you know, there's just this attraction there and, and, and a short little conversation with this guy right it just happens what's going on when boy meets girl that's what i want to think about here today um first of all john paul ii makes a very important point he says we're drawn to the sexual values of the other person i'm going to explain some of his terminology and just make it really basic for all of you he says that every human person has value, dignity in and of themselves just by being a daughter of God, a son of God, someone made in the image and likeness of God. This is who I am. My identity is found not in my looks or my personality, but it's, in, it's, it's, it's found in, in, in me being a child of God and being in the image and likeness of God. Every person has value. This is who I am. But then God has also endowed us with what he calls sexual values that don't right get to the heart of who we are, but they are very attractive and it helps people to notice us more. The sexual values of a person. You get this? So every person has dignity apart from their sexual values, but the sexual values are what we tend to notice first. What are those sexual values? There's two things here. Two things in the sexual values. First of all, oh, there's the book. Okay, there we go. Okay, an attraction. <laughs> there's a physical quality that we're attracted to. And John Paul II calls that sensuality. Sensuality is the physical attraction. That we're attracted to the physical qualities, the physical features of the person. Their good looks. But then he also points out that there's a second kind of attraction. He calls this an emotional attraction or sentimental attraction. And it's an attraction not to the physical features of the person, but to their psychological qualities their personality. Now, when he talks about psychological qualities, what he really means at the heart of it is he describes it as the masculinity of the man and the femininity of the woman. And whenever I give this talk, people always ask, oh, what does it mean to be a real man? What did he mean by masculinity? You know, and many women say, oh, what does it mean to be feminine? You know, I, I, I want to be a modern woman, but I, I don't want to be feminist, but I want to be feminine. How do you live this out? What does JP2 say, Dr. Shree? And I'd say, sorry, he doesn't say that much. I wish he said more. In 1950s Poland, there wasn't as much confusion on these things. Everyone kind of intuited it. But I'll tell you what he does say. Can I tell you what he says? He says this, basically, that a, a woman is attracted to the man's masculinity, and then he puts in parentheses, and then quotation marks, his strength. That's it. That's all he says. And he says, the man is attracted to the woman's femininity, parentheses, quotation marks, her charm. Again, I wish there was more, but the way I, I just try to break this down and make it really simple, I think it's, I think it's like we're attracted to the mystery of that opposite sex, the mystery of the woman, the mystery of the other, the mystery of the man. And for John Paul II, I want us to see that we have an emotional attraction and this physical attraction, and this is what we tend to notice, their physical qualities, their personality, the feminine, the masculine, we tend to notice that. 
But these attract, these, these qualities don't reside in the abstract. They only reside in the concrete individual human person who possesses them. Now, that was a lot. That was a mouthful I just said. But I think you'll get this idea. The, the, the qualities reside in the person. They're meant to lead us to the person and not just the qualities. So, for example, there's no guy that just is attracted to blonde in the abstract. <laughs> right, there's no guy that wakes up on Tuesday morning and just says, I need blonde. I just need to go find some blondness somewhere. No, a guy might be very attracted to a particular woman who has blonde hair, but he's not attracted to blondness in the abstract. Does that make sense? So the blondness and her physical features might lead him to, to get to know this person who has the blonde hair and all these good looks. But the point is, it's meant to lead us to the person. I mean, the, you ladies out here that have blonde hair, you do not want guys looking at you going, I just want your blonde hair. <laughs> no, you're longing for a man to long for you, for who you are, right? Same thing. There's no girl out there that wakes up on Thursday morning and just says, I need masculinity. I long for masculinity. I've got to go find some masculinity. <laughs> I need some masculinity. No, no, no. <laughs> no, uh, she may be very attracted to a particular man that possesses masculine qualities, but she's not attracted to masculinity in the abstract. Because once again, that quality resides in a person. So these things that we notice, their psychological qualities, their physical qualities, are meant to draw us to the person. This is why God gives us these qualities. It's like to shout out because I don't want you to notice the quality, I want you to notice me. And that's what we long for. The problem in our day and age is that many times we focus just on the qualities and not on the person themselves. We focus on those qualities and the enjoyment we get from them, the rush of feelings and emotions we get from them, the pleasure we get from them. And that's where relationships go astray. You see, we as human persons are not the same as the animals. And the sexual sphere of animals is, is more based on instinct, John Paul II says. Instinct. You know, do you remember like when you went to, to the doctor and they used to do the little, little uh, pink triangle rubber thing that hits your knee and then it's just like a reflex and it just goes like that? That's a reflex mode of action. That's what's going on in the animal sphere. Animals don't have the power of reasoning. They don't have conversations. Like, imagine, like, cats in Bible study thinking, what are the qualities we're looking for in a male cat? No, they don't do that. <laughs> yeah, they're just, they're not, it's not, to, the sexual sphere of, of animals is not dependent on rational thought. It's just, it's just instinct, a reflex mode of action. And we see this with other appetites with the animals. So, for example, just take hunger. If there was a dog in the neighborhood that have not, has not eaten for a week, and we bring that dog in here, and we put a big juicy steak before the dog, what's that dog going to do? What's the dog going to do? Is it going to go up and go, oh, I'll let the lady dogs go first? <laughs> or is the dog going to run up and go, oh, wait, it's a Friday in Lent? No! <laughs> the dog just acts on its appetite, and that's even more pronounced in the sexual sphere. If there's a cat in the neighborhood that's in heat, a female cat in heat, what is that heat cat going to do? Is that cat going to go around and interview different male cats in the area and discern the relationship? And then fi finally say, I choose you, Mr. Cat, to be with you in good times or in bad. No! The cat just acts, right? 
We as human persons are not meant to be a slave to our sexual appetites like the animals are. We have greater dignity. We have the ability to think, the ability to choose. We're not meant to be a slave to our sexual appetites. We can rise above them. We're in control of them. I have the power of free will. I can think like, in other words, I, I may notice there's, there's a really attractive woman over there. I may notice that. And I may sense something in me going, wow, she's really attractive. And there's a part of me that maybe wants to start kind of looking at her more. And not in a good way. And I just said, no, that's my sister in Christ. I don't want to look at her that way. And in my vocation, I'm a married man. My heart needs to be totally given to my wife. So I, I, I am capable of not, like, noticing beauty, but not being a slave to it and then reducing this sister in Christ to an object for my own exploitation in my imagination and my looks and my thoughts. I'm capable of that. But I'll tell you, our culture wants you to live just like the animals. You've got the desire, just act on it. You are greater than the animals. God has given you great dignity. John Paul II says, we must have great responsibility in what's happening in the sexual sphere and our interactions with the opposite sex. That's why he called the book Love and Responsibility. You may not plan something, like you're just driving down the highway and you, you, know, you see this billboard or you're on the internet and all of a sudden something pops up like, whoa, I didn't plan that. You know, I noticed something. I may sense something within me. I didn't plan it. So I, I'm not responsible for that. It's just spontaneously re I'm reacting to that. But what I do right now, I am very responsible for. Do I keep looking? Do I keep staring? Do I keep thinking? Or do I turn away? What do I do? That's what JPT is going after. So now what I want to do, I want to break this down. I want to go back. I want to talk about the different kinds of attraction here and some of the pitfalls we can get into, some of the challenges, the ways that if we're not careful, it'll hurt our relationships. I'm going to talk briefly about sensuality. There's a lot of chastity speakers that talk about this, but just briefly, I'll just say this. The sensual attraction, physical attraction, is meant to lead us not just to the body of the other person, but to the person himself or herself. In other words, it's meant to orient us to personal union, personal friendship, not just bodily union. But the problem comes when we make sensuality primary, we look at the other person and reduce them just to an object for me to exploit for my own gratification. And that's what the culture sells us on, right? Like, what is sex today? Sex is just like recreation. It's just something you do for fun. You know, let's have ice cream, let's go watch a movie, let's have sex. It's just something we do. But that's not how God made sex. Sex is, is theology of body brings out, and JP2 does it a touch in love and responsibility too. Sex is the most profound, intimate union two persons can have. It's meant to express this total self-giving love. As I give myself physically to this other person, it's as if I'm giving my very heart, my very self to this other person. The physical union expresses a profound interpersonal, even indeed spiritual union between man and woman. And yet that's not how the culture views it. It's just something to do for fun. I want to share with you some stories here. So some people were asking, I signed some books earlier today from my book, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, but I signed a, a copy or two of the old version, and I rarely see those. Those are kind of like vintage baseball cards for me. <laughs> so I had an old version that came out, and, and then it, you know, so I, and I got all this feedback from around the world, people talking about how the ideas of JP2 were transforming their marriages, transforming their dating relationships. And we came out with a new edition a couple years ago. It has everything in the old edition. It just has all the stories 
and testimonies from many, so many college students, not just in the United States, but overseas. So many young adult professionals, so many young couples first starting their marriages. And then I got insights from people that have been married 20, 30 years and 40 years in life. So there's a whole mix, and I love sharing those stories. I'm going to share with you some of them on this topic here. I want to talk, especially in, in this point, to the ladies in a particular way here. Because many times women think, you know, I know the church teaches that we shouldn't have sex before marriage. I don't really want to necessarily go that route, but I feel I have to if I want to keep the relationship. And I get it. I've heard from many young adults, both men and women, about how like, I, I get the church's teaching. These are people that love God. They go to Mass daily. They really are committed Catholics, but they say, but all the beautiful love stories we see in the movies, on Netflix, all the beautiful love stories end with the couple in bed, and it just makes us wonder sometimes, are we missing out on something? I know it's not right, but, but I just, it, I, my face sometimes gets a little shaken. I want to share with you some stories here. One woman said, if I start by giving him what he wants, then maybe he'll eventually love me as a person. I can't tell you how many times I heard that story from young women. That they didn't necessarily want to go that route physically, but they did it because they thought, well, if I do this, then maybe he'll be more committed to me. Another woman said this, I never brought up any problems in the relationship because if I did, I knew it would be over. In other words, the woman is intuiting that this guy I'm with if I start bringing up things, hey, I don't like the way you're treating me, or you know, I felt bad about what you said yesterday, or you haven't called, or whatever. If I, if I bring up any kind of problem, I sense that he's going to be frustrated, and, and he'll leave me, and the relationship will be over. Why? What is she deeply intuiting? That the man is not really committed to me. He's not committed to the relationship. He's just committed to the fun times. And if I have to make him work a little bit for the relationship, grow in virtue, treat me better... I, I don't feel I can ever bring up those tough things because deep down I know he'll end it. He's just in it for the sex. In the end. I mean, yes, he'll be nice to me. He'll take me out to dinner. He'll buy me flowers. But it's really just so we can get in bed together. Another young woman put it this way. I knew he was just using me and I let him. I thought that if I were to go along with this for a while, then he would eventually change and come to love me. Now, sisters in Christ, I'm here to tell you something. I, I, my brothers, you can, you, men struggle with this as well. There's women that push this and the men don't want to. That happens, but it does happen a little more the other way around. I want to tell you, sisters in Christ, though, that I've talked to other women like you all around the country the last 20 years. And not just around the country, but overseas. I've talked to them in Australia. I've talked to them in Ireland. I've talked to them in Dubai. And they all resonate with these stories. And they all tell me, I've, I've compromised, I've made that mistake, and I want to tell you this, in all of the cases I've ever heard, it never works. It never, ever works. If you're ever tempted to think, I'll compromise there so I can win the relationship, I will just tell you, I have yet to hear a success story of that in 20 years, talking to thousands of people. It never works. If you want someone to love you for who you are, if you want a lasting love, do not compromise on those matters. I'm going to tell you a true, a true story of a friend of mine I worked with. You know, before I was a theologian and all and did these things, I, I worked in the corporate world. And 
One of my, my former colleagues, she had a lot of ups and downs in her relationships with guys. And I left the company eventually, she eventually left the company, kind of lost, we didn't keep in touch as much. And then I got married, she sent me a really nice gift, and so I thought, I'll just give her a call. And I found out she had moved to a new, a new city, and so I had to get her a new number, and finally got a hold of her, and got caught up. But she, I asked her, so why are you living in this city? And she said, oh, well, my boyfriend lives here, and so I moved here and just moved in with him. And she had done things like this before, and as soon as I heard that, my heart sank for her. But I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, okay, you know, and I just got caught up on other things in life, caught up on some old friends. But then eventually, I came back to the boyfriend. I said, so, hey, tell me about the relationship with your boyfriend. How's it going? Are you happy? That's all I asked him, a very simple question. Are you happy in this relationship with the guy? And on the other end of the phone, it was just silence. Silence. And if there's silence for like 15 seconds on the phone, it gets really awkward, you know? It's kind of something, I wonder what's going on. And I was about to say, hey, are you, and all of a sudden I can hear her, she's sniffling, she's crying. And then eventually she just starts out just complete sobbing, and she starts to tell me her story. And she says, Ted, I've been here been living with him now for six weeks, and I already know, I already know he's not the one. And she's just bawling her eyes out now. She goes on, tells me some things that were happening, and at the end of it, she finally just says, Ted, I know he's not the one. I know he's just using me. Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? What we're looking at tonight here with John Paul II isn't just some Catholic theology on marriage and sexuality. JP too gave this because he knew that cry in young people, and he doesn't want young people to have to keep crying out, why does this keep happening to me? He wants to offer us all a different way to live relationships, to live dating, to live marriage. And let's look at the next phase here, because I think this, this part is more even more important, well, they're both important, but not as many people talk about this part. I want to talk about the way we can fall into many traps with sentimentality and emotions. John Paul II says, love is often reduced to feelings. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. And I think that's, that's a challenge, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong, feelings are an important part of relationship. John Paul II says that. He says, the ideal relationship is not one absent of emotion or feeling, right? I mean, picture that. You know, if I look my wife in the eye, hey, Beth, I want you to know I love you. I'm committed to you. I'll always be there for you. I would die for you, but I have absolutely no feelings for you. That's not the ideal marriage, <laughs> right? You, in other words, what do, what do emotions do? It like allows you to enter into the experience, the heart, the emotions of the other person, like so you're connected. You, you, you feel like your two lives made one. And, and that, that's a good thing. The problem is you don't want to lead with your emotions. You don't want to look at your emotions and say, this is the guide for me to know, do I love this person? Am I ready for a relationship with this person? Is this the ideal person? Is this the ideal relationship? We should not turn to our emotions for that. Why? Because John Paul II says, feelings are blind. Feelings are blind. Now I'm going to do real basic philosophy with you here. Any, any philosophy people here? Anyone study any philosophy? Some of you? Okay, so I'm going to go basic Aristotle on you. Um, there are different powers of the soul we have. We have an intellect, 
a mind, I already said to think for ourselves. We have free will, power of self-determination to choose. But we also have our passions and our emotions, okay? Now, almost all of you are not philosophy majors. And you don't need to be. I think you're going to get the answer right, okay? If you want to figure out the truth of something, what do you turn to? Your mind, your will, or your feelings? Like, if I want to know in math class, what is 2 plus 2? Am I using my mind, my will, or my feelings? What do you think the answer is? You're using your mind, right? It's the mind's job to discern truth. The mind discerns truth, right? If you go to math class and, and the teacher puts on the board two plus two is, and then somebody raises, the, and everybody says four, but, the but somebody in the back of the room says, wait, wait, teacher, teacher, wait, 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 hold on. I disagree. Because for me, two plus two feels like five. <laughs> it just feels that way because five has those two straight lines and the curve. You're thinking, that guy's crazy. What's going on there, right? No, no, you use your mind for these things. And the same is true when it comes to, should I be in a dating relationship right now? Am I ready just to date anyone? That's a question of the mind. That's not a question of your feelings. Is this the right person I should enter into a dating relationship with? That's a question of the mind, not just feelings. Should I marry this person? That's, again, a question of the mind. You know, if you're looking out, you're looking at someone. Like, let's say there's some gal interested in this guy. And you have all these warm feelings for this guy. That's great. But you want to ask questions about his character, his virtue. Is this a virtuous man? And, and let's say there's some guy and he just spends five hours a day playing computer games, video games. That's a question of the I don't care how good looking he is, how funny he is. If he's always entertaining himself, he's just a slave on this game, that, what that tells you is it's not easy for him to make a sacrifice to serve something bigger than himself. Maybe he can make sacrifices on his screen, shooting and blowing up stuff, but it's not easy for him to get out of himself and serve others. He's always entertaining himself. That tells you something. That's a question of the mind. Same thing if there's, there's a guy, you're really attracted to this gal. She's just amazing. She's great looking and all that. But you've got to ask questions of the mind. Is, is she the kind of woman that can, that can carry a lot of weight in life? And I don't mean just physical weight, although that happens if you have babies. But, <laughs> but I talk about, can she shoulder a lot of responsibility? Is this the kind of woman you want to, 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 to spend hours and hours with your kids? And does she have the character you want to rub off on your children? That's a question of the mind. The problem is today we're so swept away by everything we see on social media and YouTube and all the shows we watch, the music we listen to. Because what's love according to all the love songs out there? What is love? Love is two things. Love is either, either all of this, you know, it's all the emotions, right? There's all these love songs. I don't know, you turn on Delilah and it's like, you know, <laughs> you know all I need is you. You know, no, you need oxygen and water and many other things, okay? Or, <laughs> I can't live without you. Yes, you can. You live 19 years without this person. You really can. <laughs> you know, or just have to have all these feelings, right? And, you know, feelings, nothing more than feelings. And, 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 and you know, if you lost that love and feeling, well, then, whoa, 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 then the relationship's over. I got to go find someone else to give me those feelings. That's what the culture's telling us. I met a woman once. I was flying to Pennsylvania. I was giving a, t a marriage conference, and this woman, she's probably... 35 years old, really professionally dressed. She has an MBA master's 
degree and, and a committed Christian. She was Lutheran. She was involved in her church, involved in Bible study, loves Jesus. She asked me what I'm going to be speaking on at this conference. I tell her about love and marriage, and I'm sharing some of these ideas. And after just like three minutes, of, you know, five minutes of conversation, all of a sudden she says, thank you so much. I said, oh. She, she says, you just saved my marriage. I was like, what do you mean? What, what did I say? And she goes, I mean, I, I've been wondering, I've been married seven years now, and my husband's a good man, but I've just been wondering for, for several years now, why my marriage is not like all the love songs I listen to on the radio. I share that story because this is not, like, this is a very smart, intelligent woman, very professional, successful, and a committed Christian. But what is her guide for what love is? Is she turning to the Bible to really find that? No, she's turning to the song she listens to. Be careful what you listen to. It really affects you. So either the songs are hyper-emotional or... They're totally sensual. It's like Ed Sheeran love. Ed Sheeran love. I'm in love with your body. I'm in love with the shape of you. And though my heart's kind of in it, it's really just about your body. He basically comes out so crassly and just says that. I'm not trying to pick on Ed Sheeran. He's got, <laughs> he's got some other good songs. Let's just say that one is far from perfect. Let's just say that. <laughs> but this is the deal here. Like, it's, it's all about the body. It's all about sex. Women, you deserve to be loved for so much more than your body. You deserve to be loved for who you are. Be careful what you put in your mind. It, it does shape you. Don't think it doesn't shape you. We're about to watch the Super Bowl. You're all going to watch the Super Bowl this week? Coming up here, right? Companies will spend millions and millions of dollars to put a 30-second little song in your head, an image before you. And so many young people say, well, I don't listen to the lyrics, or I don't do it doesn't affect me. <laughs> and the rich corporate leaders are just laughing at you. They're just laughing at you. <laughs> of course it affects you. That's why they're spending millions of dollars. They know the psychology. They know how it shapes you. Be careful what movies you watch. Be careful what shows you watch. Be careful what music you listen to. If you want to have a great marriage someday, these things matter. Right now, you're in marriage prep. Remember that. Now, a couple other things. Think about the movies. Can I, I want to pick on an old movie. Can I pick on an old movie here? I bet you've all seen it, even you young people. Okay, can I ask the, the LSU students here, have, have you ever seen that late 90s movie, The Titanic? How, okay, raise your hand. Come on. How many of you seen the movie? Okay. Oh, I, okay. Guys, you're admitting it. You saw it too. Okay. <laughs> you know, I want you to bring your mind to the movies and the shows you watch, and I want you to an just analyze that film for a bit. You know, teenage girls went and watched that movie over and over and over again in the theater. And then when it came out on DVD, they got the DVD and watched it over and over and over again. And I have a theory on why teenage girls were so attracted to that movie. This is my theory, ready? I'm convinced that they kept watching that movie because teenage girls today really love movies about boats. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's because it's super emotional, right? I mean, think about the picture of love in Titanic. There is one very noble moment. Jack dies for Rose. Leonardo dies for Kate, right? He gives up his life, self-giving love, applaud, amen. Let's just really reverence that for a moment, okay? There we go. Now let's look at the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie's picture of love, I would argue, may be a worse disaster than the original shipwreck. 
And here's why. Okay, now really, I want you to bring your mind to the movie, right? So many young people saw the movie, like, oh, wow, they had a perfect love. This is the love that would have lasted forever if it wasn't for those stupid adults that crashed the ship into the, to the Titanic, to the, the iceberg thing. Okay, so anyway. But bring your mind to the movie for a second. How long did Jack and Rose know each other? How long did they know each other? Like three days. And yet, this is the love that would last forever. They didn't know each other. And even on those three days, she's in the upper class, he's in the lower class. Like they, Even on those three days, they didn't even spend that much time together. And yet, we just overly romanticize. This must be the perfect love. You know, there's another, another image there. You know, what, what, did, what did Jack do for a living? Do you remember? In the movie, what did Jack do for a living? He was, he was an artist. I heard someone say he's an artist. Yeah, that's what you would tell your mom. <laughs> what, what does this guy do? Oh, oh, oh he's, uh, he's an artist. What did he paint? Naked women. <laughs> okay, so let's just think about that for a moment. So now, here's the big picture of love. In Titanic, what's the big, what's, if you had to pick one scene, that one image that shows love, this is what love is according to Titanic. <laughs> Did you know a couple years after the movie came out, cruise liners had to put security guards at the front of the ship? Really, I'm not kidding. There was a whole article on this. They had to put security guards at the right, because all these young women would beg their boyfriends, please take me on a cruise. And let's do that Jack and Rose thing. If you just hold me like Jack and Rose, dud, then, then I'll know you really love me. We'll play Celine Dion in the background. It'll be really special. But this is what the movies do. They over-romanticize love. The good news, you're all devout, committed Catholics, you young people at LSU. You come to this church. You study theology of the body, maybe. You've heard some of these ideas. So none of this affects you, right? None of this affects you. You know, I, I, I shared this story last night at, at a parish outside of town about, like, many, I meet many young people that are all excited about theology of the body. They, you know, they're really interested in love and marriage, and they want to get it right, right? And so they, they really spiritualize all their, their dating and everything. You know, it's, like, really serious. It's like, you know, no, Dr. Sri, we, I actually don't do dating. I do courtship. <laughs> With a capital C. Oh, it's, you know, I actually... You know, went for coffee with a girl. And now we're going to do a 54-day novena to discern the relationship <laughs> to see if we should go out for coffee again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not that bad. No, but like, they get, like, I love it, you know, because I didn't have TOB when I was growing up. I wish I did. And I love the young people because they want to get it right. They know that what the culture is offering is not working. So this is awesome. I love it. But here's my concern is that sometimes they over-sentimentalize, romanticize what love really is. And they'll bring Jesus in. It's like, yeah, we know where it's recording. We're going to do rosary walks. And we'll come to Mass at the Our Father. And we'll hold hands at the Our Father. But, you know, at that special way. You know, Jesus is in the middle of our relationship. It's great. And, you know, we'll get married. We'll have a dozen priests and lots of incense and sacred music. And that's just somehow going to make our marriage so special. I love liturgy and all that. It's beautiful. But, 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 but really, they, they, they could go and think of marriage is going to be like this. You know, I, I, we'll get married, we'll have a bunch of babies, you know, because babies, it's awesome, you know. And, and, but, but every night, we'll put the kids down, and we'll sit by a fire together. And we'll renew our marriage. We'll have great conversation. We'll sip some good red wine. We'll hold hands, and we'll gaze into each other's eyes. 
and whisper sweet quotes from theology of the body to each other. <laughs> it's going to be so special. Can I ask you married people out there? Married folks, raise your hands, Eric, once again, so I see you. Does your marriage look like that? Is that what your marriage looks like? Can I tell you what my marriage looks like? This is what love looks like in the street household, right? I come home after a long day of work. There's chaos all over the table. My wife's getting the dinner finalized there. And I'm like, all right, kids, let's go. Everyone help clean up here. That means you two get over here. Okay, ready? All right, now let's go upset the table. Let's help mom bring the food out here. Okay, ready? Okay, now ready? Bless us, oh Lord. Now we're going to serve the food. Oh, you need some water. Let me go get some water for you, okay? Oh, oh, you need a drink too. That would have been really helpful while I was up, but that's okay. That's fine. All right, all right, ready? Oh, we're about to take our first bite. And then, oh, you, you want seconds. Well, mom and dad haven't had first so that's okay though and then inevitably inevitably about once a week this always happens I don't know why this is so complicated this really should not be a problem but every week somebody spills their cup it could be the little kid it could be the fifth grader it could be my 17 year old teenage boy the other day just knocks over come on can't we get this right But what happens when one of the little kids spills their cup? What does that little kid do? No, he doesn't cry. You don't have kids yet. You don't know. They don't cry. You know what little kids do? The cup is spilling and they just go like this. They just stare. We got Niagara Falls coming down the table, but we're just... So we finish our meal, we do a closing blessing. Okay, now let's uh, let's do the chores, let's clean up, get in the dishwasher, do the sweep. Okay, go practice your violin, don't forget your piano. Oh, how, how's your math coming over here, sweetie? Okay, you need some help with this? Or um, can, can, can you give the little children a bath, the older sister? That'd be great, thank you there. Okay, oh, oh you need me to sign something for you? Hey, uh, the baby's running around naked. Could someone clothe the naked up there? That'd be really helpful. All right, all right, kids, everyone, we've got to get ready for bed soon, so go upstairs, get your pajamas on. Let's brush your teeth with toothpaste, yes? Okay, all right, everyone, okay, so children, let's gather together. We're going to do one more prayer before we go to bed, and okay, thank you. Well, let me tell you, kids, it's been a long day. And mom and dad are exhausted. So it's time for you to go to bed, all right? I give you a little blessing. Now go stay in your rooms now, okay? You just stay <laughs> in your rooms. That would be great. Thank you. No, no, sweetie, that means you too. So you got to go up and stay in your room. No, 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 sweetie. Really, you have to stay up and stay in your room. Okay, dad said stay in your room. Stay in your room! It's like 10.30 at night, my wife and I make it back to the sanctuary of our bedroom. We plop down on our beds. And I look at her and go, hey, honey, are you doing okay? She says, yeah, honey, I'm doing okay. I said, all right, I love you. Good night. She says, I love you. Good night. That's love. Real love is not gazing in each other's eyes saying, you make me feel so good. (laughs) Real love is not so self-centered. That's self-centered. You make me feel good. What feelings do you give me? And people try to, like, they they struggle in marriage because there's times where those feelings are powerful. I get to go on date night. I I get those moments with my wife. It's awesome. But that's not what marriage, that's not what real love is about. Those feelings all come and go. 
Love is a commitment. It's to will the good of the other, to seek what's best for this other person, for our marriage, for our, 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 our family. Real love is not gazing in each other's eyes, making each other feel so good like The Notebook. That's a whole other movie I talked about. Let's just rekindle those feelings to just get this emotion back. I'm sorry. You're a grandfather. Go spend time with your grandchildren instead of just trying to conjure up these feelings. Yes, love her, care for her, be there for her, but it was so self-centered. Give me the feelings back that I had before. How self-centered a view of love that is. If you looked at all the movies you watch and you start looking at this lens, you'll realize how much this is what the culture is selling you on love. And don't take that as I think the whole movie of The Notebook was, was horrible, but I do think that was a problem. He was not present to his children and his grandchildren. He was focused on conjuring up a feeling for himself again. Self-centered love. That's not what we're called to do. Real love is not gazing in each other's eyes, you make me feel so good. Real love is husband and wife standing shoulder to shoulder and looking outward to serve something so much bigger than themselves. And that's your children, if you're blessed with children. But JP2, I'm going to share with you another quote from JP2. We're getting close to the end here, so let me, let, me, let me get this in for you. John Paul II says the challenge is, and the reason why you know, our emotions tend to kind of get carried away, is that when we, we find ourselves emotionally falling in love with someone, the beloved, the person, grows out of all proportion in our estimation. They grow out of all proportion to the real value. In other words, I meet somebody... And I think, wow, maybe this person's interesting, and all of a sudden I, I make them out to be this, this, this perfect Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. You know, I, I think, about like, like, say, for example, there's a, a gal here at, the, at Christ the King, and again, she shows up for the Newman Center or the, the chaplain, uh, the, the campus ministry event, and there's that new guy that transferred here, right? Remember, I gave that example before. And let's say, again, he, again he's halfway good-looking, and let's say he has four and a half of the qualities of the 10 qualities she's looking for in that ideal man. Those qualities she wrote down on a retreat one day and put it in her Bible, right? And he's got four and a half of them. So, I mean, not all there, but like, wow, there's some potential. And so she talks to him for about 20 minutes at the social gathering, you know, a 20-minute conversation. Well, he talked to me for 20 minutes, and she leaves, and she just is thinking about him, and she's thinking, I can't wait for the next event at Christ the King, and, uh, and she's, you know, praying about him the next day. She's thinking about the wedding dress. <laughs> You're laughing, ladies, but you know it's true. You've done that. I've talked to you, ladies, all around the world. Many women have told me, yep, that can happen. 20-minute conversation, boom, wedding dress. That could happen. Guys, I want to talk to you. 19 minutes and cut it off. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but, but, but what, what's happening there, right? I mean, again, what's happening is I meet this person that has some of the qualities I'm looking for, but it's just my first meeting. But I so desire to find that Mr. Perfect. I so desire to find that person. I make this person have all these other qualities. I think they're just going to be so special. You know, so I see a couple qualities in this guy, but I, all of a sudden I make him out to be like, he's like St. Pierre Giorgio. I mean, oh, wow, he's just right there, you know, and I could picture, you know, our wedding picture, he's up there with the pipe, and I'm there on the mountain. I mean, it'd just be amazing. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, what's going on there? Is it, we, we quickly exaggerate the qualities. Why? Because I long with all my heart, John Paul II says, to find someone that's going to be that ideal, perfect person that will make me feel so good. But when I do that, am I really in love with the person? 
Am I in love with the real person? No, I'm just in love with this ideal I created because it gives me a powerful rush of emotions. Like, baby, I found the one. Baby, I found the one. There's all these powerful romantic feelings that come there. But I'm not really in love with the person. I'm just in love with this ideal I created. And that's why John Paul II says so many times young relationships like this that are based on the emotions and exaggerated exaggerated perception of the other person it often ends in disillusionment and sometimes even in hatred in the, of the other person. Because now all of a sudden this person that I thought was Mr. Perfect, over time I'm eventually going to have to encounter the real person. And he's not as much like Pierre Giorgio as I thought he was. He's not as special as I thought he was. He actually has all these problems and he frustrates me sometimes. And I'm not getting that rush of emotion like I used to and I'm frustrated because I want the emotion. And so now I'm frustrated with him and I end the relationship. There's a gal that once said a few years ago, she said, you know, I I typically date guys for about four months and then I break up with them and go find another guy. And then when asked, well, why four months? Like, why why is it the four-month mark? She goes, oh, that's typically when the feelings go away. And I really like those feelings. And so when those feelings go away, I want to go find feelings from someone else to get those feelings back. What a horrible way to live your relationships, right? I remember I used to teach at Benedictine College in Kansas, and there were all those, like, really, again, very committed courtship people. Again, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm not against courtship. Please, I hope you know that. I was just telling a fun story. But, but, but they, they would be like this, and, like, and they'd do these rosary walks. they study together. These upperclassmen and all the freshmen at Benedictine College would look at them saying, oh, I hope to have a relationship like that someday. And they'd see them just be very Catholic and dating and courtship, and it's all special. And then four months later... They hate each other's guts, can't be in the same room together. They can't go to the same retreats together. And all the freshmen are wondering, what happened? And I'm sitting there going, what happened? Idealization happened, of course. Because when you get hyper-emotional like that, especially when you start sharing a lot of feelings, and even when you're talking Jesus things, like sometimes that might not be the best thing to talk too deeply about your spiritual life with that person. You don't go for coffee and on the second date start talking about what method of NFP you hope to use someday. And do you want to do homeschooling? How many kids do you want to have? Or you meet someone at a conference and you stay up till two in the morning sharing deep things that you don't share with anybody else. This is what's going on in my life and these are the hurts I have. This is how I feel God moving me. Like, that's, that's just not modest. We all know about physical modesty. We shouldn't dress in a way and unveil our bodies so much. That's the sensual side of things. But you want to be careful and have some emotional modesty and not just unveil entirely your heart to someone at an early stage of a relationship. It's a gradual unveiling as you're getting to assess with your mind this person's character. Is this person trustworthy? Is he virtuous? Is he steady? Is he reliable? Can I trust him with this aspect? And I can share a little more. Okay, yep, that's okay. I trust a little more. But when you do this, you know, you don't, you don't get physically naked and you shouldn't get emotionally, spiritually naked with someone. So we've got to be careful even on this emotional side of things because what we do when I, when I, open, if I open up and I'm vulnerable really deeply with someone that I just met at this retreat and they're open and vulnerable with me, it's like it's a way to hotwire the, like a connection. It's like, oh, wow, I got that connection. But it doesn't mean it's real. Like, again, I want that connection. I want that, but it's not real. The friendship hasn't been tested. I don't really know this person. All right, in closing, in closing, let's talk about what, we've talked a lot about the pitfalls. What do I want to look for? What do I want to build in a relationship? 
You know, an immature love, Paul, John Paul II says, a love when it's immature is when you're just focused on yourself. You're focused on what feelings I get emotionally, what pleasure I get sexually. I'm focused on me. It's inward looking. But real, a real mature love is outward looking. It's looking at the other person, seeking what's best for them. I will the good of this other person. But, but if I had more time, this is what I'd love to get to. You can pray about this. This is going to be, God willing, one of my books I do at the end of the year here. I want to talk a lot about, the, if I want to live love, what I need the most, apart from grace, of course, is virtue. Virtue gives me the freedom to love. If I want to love this person, I want to grow in virtue. If I want to prepare for a good marriage, I want to grow in virtue. When I'm looking at, does this person, is this a good relationship? Does this person have virtue? That's the key. Why do I say that? Because anyone can have feelings for you. Anyone could have sexual feelings for you, emotional feelings for you. Anyone could have that. Anyone can say, I love you. Some people might sincerely mean it. But there's not that many people out there that actually have the virtue to pull it off and actually love you. You see, I, I could say, you know, I love airplanes. As a kid, I used to go on some trips with my dad, and I was fascinated by airplanes. And I could say, I'm passionate about airplanes. I get strong feelings about airplanes. And I heard you needed to fly to Texas. And I said, oh, let me fly that plane for you. I don't have the skills of the pilot. Are you going to get in the plane with me in, that, with me in the cockpit? No way. If I told you this is true, my dad was a surgeon. And he used to take me into the hospital. I'd, I'd get to meet his patients. He'd show me his pictures of surgery. I'd look at anatomy books with him. And I, I have a certain passion about surgery. I think it's just fascinating. And if I heard you needed surgery, and I said, oh, I am so passionate about surgery. Let me perform your surgery. Would you let me do that? I'm not that kind of a doctor. Like, this is obvious, right? You never get an airplane with someone that doesn't have the skills of a pilot. You never get onto the operating table with someone that doesn't have the skills of the surgeon. And yet, how many people jump into dating relationships, into marriages, without ever asking the question of virtue? Does this person have the virtue to love me? Because the, to the extent someone has the habitual, consistent practice of generosity in their life, of, of courage in their life, to, to endure suffering for the good of others. If they don't, to the extent someone lacks generosity, to the extent someone lacks courage, they will do selfish things and cowardly things that will hurt you. To the extent someone does not have self-mastery, self-control, they will do out-of-control things that will end up hurting you. If someone just isn't prudent in how they manage their time and how they manage their finances or whatever, they will do imprudent things that will eventually hurt you. No matter how many warm feelings they have for you, no matter how much they sincerely love you, if they don't have the character, the virtue, you cannot love. That's why the follow-up I want to do to this book is to actually walk through the virtues we need for friendship, for dating, and for marriage and family life. But you can pray for that project. I'm going to do that starting in the summer, so I'd appreciate it. But with that... We are at the end of our time. And I want to tell you what we're going to do here. We're going to take a little break. But before we do that, can I? That's the book that I wrote, by the way. That's called Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. I want you to know it comes with small group questions. And so at the end of every chapter, there's simple questions that you can use for a Bible study or a small group. I know a lot of people around the world have been using this, a lot of young adults. So if, if you can follow what I was saying, I write the way I speak. So it should be very easy to follow. So to unpack JP2's... Uh, vision for relationships as we looked at here today. So you can check that out. 
But can I introduce you to some of my closest friends? Can I introduce you here? This is my crew here. So that's my family from Madeline, who's a freshman at Bennington College, uh, down to Kiara, and there's our little three-year-old, Eleanor, in the midst of it there. So that's my crew, and there's our family at her graduation, my wife there this last week. So um, thank you for that. Last thing I'll just mention, too, is this. Um, on my website, if you like today's talk, I think on my website I actually have the talk, at least a certain version of it, available for free. So if you have a friend that wasn't able to be here and you say, hey, you want them to check it out, they can just go to the website. Do any of you listen to podcasts? Any podcast listeners? Check out my podcast. It comes out every Tuesday. His father said it's called All Things Catholic with Edwards Three. If you go to whatever source you use to find your podcasts, you know, like if it's Apple Podcasts, whatever, you can pull out your phone. But when you do that, make sure you don't put nearly my last name, SRI. I've been told by people, Dr. Shri, I couldn't find your podcast. I put an SRI and I found an Indian Hindu guru. <laughs> I'm not the Indian Hindu girl guy. You got to put Edward SRI and then you'll be able to, to find that. So I want to encourage you, you can subscribe to that. It's called All Things Catholic. I do a, a whole range of things. I gave a talk. I did a podcast a little bit on this in early January. I do stuff on marriage. I do stuff on the saints. I do stuff on morality. So a whole bunch of different things. That's why it's called All Things Catholic. You can check that out there. Okay. I'll turn it back to Father then. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Shree, thank you. I knew it was going to be good. I've heard a version of this talk that was incredible and imminently practical. Thank you. Seriously. Thank you. One, one thing I want to ask you to do if whatever during, during his talk, like, stirred something in your heart, there was a particular thing or a couple of things that, that really kind of moved in you a little bit, like, ooh, you need to go pray with that. You need to go spend time before the Lord, whatever, because that's, that's the Holy Spirit moving in your heart. He wants to teach you something. He wants to unfold that truth in your life. And then find other people, right? Someone who has, has a maturity in the faith, a maturity in virtue, and then ask them to help you unpack whatever that is. Because the Lord wants, he, well, each of us, there's so much there. It's incredible. I hope we listen, listen to it again. But if there's something in there, the Lord wants to unpack that thing that's kind of tugging at your heart. Don't let it pass by. Pray about it and seek the wisdom of others. So thank you so much for coming tonight. Again, when we have these events, when we have these talks, and these are such incredible opportunities. And many times we think, oh, I'm so busy, waiting for maybe a better option, right? Huh? Man. <laughs> invite your friends. Invite your friends to come.